Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, Ernie, are you ready to go? All right, three, two, one, let's do this. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest in this episode is Dr. Ernest Chan, founder of QTS Capital Management. Investor, researcher, and educator, Ernie is well known for his blog, which he began publishing in 2006, as well as the several books he has authored, including Quantitative Trading, Algorithmic Trading, and Machine Trading. Our conversation meets at the intersection of tail risk hedging and machine learning. Ernie has a long history with machine learning, having first applied it on Wall Street in the late 1990s. After striking out on his own in 2006, he abandoned it due to the overfitting issues he believed it suffered. In recent years, however, Ernie has readopted machine learning, believing that modern approaches help circumvent the overfitting problems and create robust, reliable models. Specifically, Ernie applies machine learning as a risk management layer on QTS's Tail Reaper program, an intraday trend-following model designed to profit in periods of crisis. We discuss why such a program can be effective as a tail hedge and how the risk management layer can potentially help reduce the premium bleed typically associated with tail programs. For listeners keen on understanding modern applications of machine learning, this is not one to miss. Ernie, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. I think I started reading your blog back when I was an undergrad back in 2007. You're a well-known author at this point, all sorts of experience under your belt. I think this is going to be a great episode because it's hitting on two topics that I know my listeners are really excited to hear about right now, which is tail risk hedging and machine learning. Talking about the intersection of that, I think this is going to be a great, great episode. Where I would love to start off is with a little bit of your background, getting an understanding of where you come from, how you got into the industry. I know that you were very early on one of the practitioners of machine learning back in the 90s. Would love to get a sense of how that was, and we'll take it from there. Well, thanks for inviting me, Corey. It'll be uh, very interesting to talk about the two of you. So I was a physics PhD, as many cons are, but after I got my PhD from Cornell, I did nothing about physics, I immediately pursued my passion, which was and is machine learning. So I got uh, to work for a group at the IBM TJ Watson Research Center for Human Language Technologies Group. Now that group was a bit in the news lately because of a biography on Jim Simon's 
the founder of Renaissance Technologies. It turns out that until recently, the two co-CEOs of Rentec were managers in my group. I did not meet them. I missed them by one year. They already went to Rentec when I joined. But many of the current portfolio managers of Rentec were my colleagues in that group as well. So I enjoyed three good years working with this highly interesting team at IBM before I move on to join Morgan Stanley Data Mining and AI Group, which is a fairly new group within the firm that provides machine learning consulting to various business units. And after that, I embark on a number of uh, trading career, well, working with different prop trading desks at different banks and hedge funds until 2006 when I started to trade for myself and then later on managing money for clients and writing books. Now, I know when you were working for some of the banks, you were an early practitioner of machine learning. And machine learning is a field that has changed substantially over the last two decades. Can you paint a picture for us as to what machine learning was like in the late 1990s and how the field has changed since? Sure. But I think that already classification and regression trees and neural networks were already pretty popular in those days when I applied machine learning to finance back in the 90s. Uh, it is these two techniques were widely known and widely practiced. But the main thing, from what I recall, the main problem, the main challenge that me and as well as other practitioners faced at that time was overfitting. It's very easy to get a you know, excellent backtest results using neural network or random force. Well, actually, random force wasn't quite involved at the time. So decision tree is, was much more the tool of the trade. So they never really produced real profits. So many people were disillusioned by machine learning over the next 10, 20 years because of this problem. Force positive was the main problem. And because of that, I myself has pretty much put the machine learning on ice starting uh, in 2006 when I traded for myself because I certainly didn't, didn't want to generate force positive for my own trading. It's okay to generate force positive for your boss because you get paid the salary anyway. <laughs> but when your own money is at stake, it is quite a different question. So I practically abandoned machine learning for the next 10 years in my own trading, finding simple strategies, very classical quant techniques, such as co-arbitrage or pair trading, co-integration, what have you, and just stick to a low dimensional space, low parameters model for the longest time. Until a few years ago, when we observed alpha decay on many simple models, and including the ones that we traded. The proliferation of quant books and blogs and forums and podcasts pretty much democratized uh, quant trading. And I might have contributed to part of it to my own alpha decay. So I figured that, well, what is the best way to recapture some of these uniqueness of strategies? Everybody knows about factors, momentum, mean reversion. Now, what is the secret sauce anymore? And I thought that maybe machine learning will come back to help us. And now that we know about all these new advanced improvements to solve the overfitting problem, an example would be like in the field of neural networks, since Professor Hinton developed the dropout technique to apply deep learning, the issue of overfitting in neural network has been greatly reduced because of that major breakthrough, making it practical for many applications. So we decided to take another look at it about two years ago. 
things were found to make it work actually in practical trading and we apply it to our tailhead strategy uh, with some success. So that's my journey with uh, machine learning. And so that's where I want to go next, which is to talk about your tail hedge strategy, which you've called your tail reaper program. Love that name. And it's actually a strategy you've been running since 2012. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think that's when it got its start. Can you talk to me about the origin of this strategy? I, again, know you've been running money for yourself. So this was sort of a eat your own cooking type approach when you were developing it, right? Yes. When we started the fund, QTS Capital, back in 2011, we were running only one single strategy. It's a sport forex strategy. And we run it at fairly high frequency. So for maybe seven months, we had hardly a losing trade. This is quite remarkable. We would be in and out in a matter of seconds and make a good profitable round trip. And we thought we were invincible by, by that time. So we leveraged 14 times. <laughs> well, I know it's a newbie mistake, but at that time I wasn't newbie anymore, but I continue to make newbie mistakes. And then August 2011 hit. For those who may remember, 2011 August was when the U.S. Treasury debt start, got downgraded the first time ever in history. And the market didn't like it at all. So we had like crazy 5-6% moves every day in the S&P. And our strategy got hammered we suffered maybe a 35% drawdown in a period of two months. And we said, well, this is this this won't do. Because how can the strategy go from almost a perfect winning streak to a 35% drawdown in a matter of like two months? That doesn't work. So we need to look for a tailhead strategy. Because clearly what hit us was a event that is not part of normal market, but it is part of a, a tail event, a very rare event. But rare event doesn't happen that rarely in financial markets. It happens every two years. Uh, so we spent the next year looking for a tailhead strategy and we found one in 2012. And that became today's uh, tail ripper strategy. We ran that alongside with our spot ethics strategy and it hedged very well because, for example, the next crisis we encountered was in the fourth quarter of 2015 where the Chinese stock market crash and yuan devalue and the U.S. market confounds because of that. And the strategy generated sufficient return to essentially hedge all our losses in our forex strategy, which is, which is what we intended. And then it worked again in 2018, the first quarter, where the former garden happened, which wiped out one uh, levered volatility ETF, uh, ETN. And once again, it proved itself. It worked again. And of course, it worked very well also in the first quarter of this year, and it managed to have, it had a large drawdown in the equity market, and then some. So that's the origin of our pair reconstruction. So what is the approach that you're actually applying within the strategy? What's sort of the time frame you're looking at? What are the instruments that you're trading? How does the program actually work? Yes, our tailhead strategy works a little bit differently from many other tailhead or crisis after strategies. It does not trade options at all. We do not, for example, buy put options. Because actually, tail hedging could be very easy if all you do is to buy out of the money puts on the index, right? You definitely will hedge all the risk. The problem with that approach is that during the calm market, low volatility market or bullish market, you will lose a lot of option premium, time decay of option is a serious problem for many tailhead problems. 
uh, Tailhead program. So the main focus of the Tailhead program is not to hatch the tail, actually, because that's actually easy. The difficult part is to prevent it from losing so-called premium, insurance premium during calm times. And so what we trade is very simple. It's just a future, E-mini S&P 500 futures. That's all we trade. And we apply an intraday breakout strategy, a trend-following strategy to it. Now, you might ask, why would a trend-following strategy be suitable as a tail hedge? Well, think about it. If, for example, you buy the S&P every time it goes up 1% and you exit, let's say, at the end of the day, what if that day the market moves up 10%? Clearly, we'll make 9%. And vice versa, if the market went down 1% and we shorted it at that point, and the market went down another 9%, we'll make another 9%. So based on very simple arithmetic, you can see that an intraday transforming strategy on a day when the market had these huge moves, we'll be able to generate sufficient return to cover whatever loss one might incur on a long-only portfolio especially if the tailhead strategy is levered appropriately. I do not suggest, of course, it's a one-to-one head ratio. You probably need to apply higher capital to a tailhead strategy for those days than you have in a long-only portfolio. But with the appropriate head ratio, it will be able to have any loss, even overnight loss, that one might incur in a long-only portfolio. So a lot of tailhead strategies do apply options for sort of two reasons. The first is that they have the convexity properties, especially as it relates to volatility sensitivity, but they also represent all the time insurance, right? That you don't have to predict when an event is going to happen. The approach you're talking about sounds a little bit more like it's a just-in-time type hedge that you're going to need to see the trend emerge or you're going to have to see the right sort of market environment to put on the trend trade, and then the market is going to have to continue in that direction. So what's the thesis as to why this type of approach can be just as effective potentially as an all-the-time type hedge? Yes, that is indeed the caveat. For a truly unexpected event, let's say it happened before the market opened, we couldn't do anything about it. The strategy does not have positions. But what we observe is that in almost all past crises in the market, the movement of price does not happen only over a overnight gap. It always carry over multiple hours, maybe even multiple days or multiple weeks. And a very simple example is the most recent crisis, the COVID-19 crisis. People have been reporting about bad news out of China throughout January and epidemiologists were sounding increasing alarm in February, yet the market was completely calm, all-time high in February, no problem. And it is only as news get worse and worse that the panic got set, start to set in. And so there was no particular need to get in on the first bit of news. Now, even if for a truly unexpected event like, for example, 911, certainly the market gap down after multiple days of halted exchange. But once it opened, it did not just gap down and then recover. It gapped down and it went down some more. And that's also true for the financial crisis of 2008. The reason for this kind of trend is that major institutional investors need time to unload their position or to rebalance the position or to hedge positions. Whatever these measures are taken, it cannot be taken instantaneously at the market open. It has to take some time to unload 
billions, if not trillions of dollars of assets. It has to gradually buy enough options or futures to hedge these trillions of dollars of assets. And that a large amount of rebalancing and hedging activity is what we are trying to piggyback on in a tail hedge strategy. And as I said, the hedge ratio is crucial. Even though we might have missed the large gap opening, let's say the market was already down 15% at the opening. Well, as long as we lever the strategy appropriately, even if the market only has another, let's say 3% to run during the day, well, if you lever it five times, you will be able to capture the entire 15% run that you have missed overnight. A lot of the evidence that we're starting to see is that markets are making significantly larger moves overnight than they are making intraday. And I think that's been a pattern that really continued. It's been something we've seen over the last decade, two decades, but that pattern was certainly in play in February and March where you had these huge gap opens. And then intraday, there were certainly swings in movement, but it seemed like directionally, the big market directional movements were happening overnight. So again, your perspective here is that you can still effectively hedge out tail risk, even if you're not holding an overnight position? That is correct. And in fact, the overnight movement, yes, there are a number of very large movements overnight, and that continue in the same direction throughout the next trading day. However, one must also look at those times where the large movement overnight lean reverted during the trading day. And so if we were to get into the position based on the overnight trend, we might be quite unprofitable for those days. And balancing the two lead us to believe that it is much safer and much more consistent to capture only the regular trading hours trend rather than overnight. Are the concepts of multi-day trend following transferable to intraday trend following or are there nuances almost like market microstructure and things like bid-ask bounce that you really have to be careful to take account for? Well, I think that the basic principle saying trend following strategy can operate in multiple time frames, and there's no telling over what time frame it is optimal for, let's say, a particular period. But you're right that the shorter the duration of holding, the shorter the time frame, the more important market microstructure becomes. So you certainly need a better execution system to handle intraday trading than overnight trading. And our experience trading the Forex strategy, which is, as I mentioned, a fairly high frequency strategy, prepares for dealing with these kind of uh, intraday execution issues. Trend following as a category, that's a broad classification and practitioners use all sorts of different models and specifications and techniques in practice. Some make it very, very complicated. Some try to adopt diversification. Some rely on specific models for specific markets. How do you think about designing a trend following system? Well, I think one of the, actually there are two aspects to it. The first one, which is the most basic one is the time frame, as I mentioned already. You know, actually time following already got a bad rap in the recent years. A lot of CTA were abandoned by investors because they think, hey, where's the trend? We, we're waiting for momentum to happen. It never happened. But that is, Typically because a lot of trend-following funds was using a fairly long look-back period. 11 months or 12 months seems to be a typical period, maybe three months. It seems that for crisis alpha strategy, for tailhead strategy, actually a shorter time frame is what is most effective as evidenced by our strategy and other similar crisis alpha funds. 
So that's the first aspect. This is really the optimal duration that we set the tone. The second aspect to answer is, I think the basic strategy should still be fairly simple. The you know, trend is not difficult to define, but it is the risk management that can be quite complicated. And that's where we apply our machine learning strategy. We do not use the machine to discover trends. We use the machine to tell us the probability that the trend will continue. The machine learning system can fetal the trading signal generated by the base system, or it can recommend a lower capital allocation to a trade if it judges the probability to be too low. Now, this is not a concept that we invented. I know that Marcus Lopez Ricardo had been writing about it in his bestsellers for, uh, for a while, and we just took that approach to apply it uh, to a practical trading strategy with some success. You're referring to the Marcos Lopez de Prado's meta-labeling approach where you're using one system and then applying sort of afterwards, after you see the signals play out and look at the PNL, you're applying whether that trade was profitable or not, and then trying to use machine learning to assign probabilities to future trades as to whether they'll be profitable or not. That is correct, yes. So you don't use machine learning in, say, the signal generation at all. The base system is a fairly straightforward trend-following type signal, and then the machine learning is applied as a second layer of risk management. That's exactly true. In 2012, we didn't have the machine learning risk management system. We just went cold turkey with trend-following for short-term trend-following. And also, like I said, it worked in 2015, and it worked again in 2018. But there was a significant drawdown in between when the market was cut. Like in 2019, we lost about 8%. And that's when we started to apply machine learning. We say, well, we need to get rid of this drawdown. Investors don't like this. And how do we keep ourselves from losing premium? Well, that's to apply risk management based on machine learning to veto some of the trade when the market was, frankly, in little danger of having a tail movement. For listeners that might not be as familiar with the work, can you explain the idea behind meta-labeling and sort of drill into the process a little bit? Mm -hmm, sure. Meta-labeling is what's called a supervised training algorithm, a supervised machine learning algorithm. In a supervised training algorithm, you need to have a set of features. These features could be simple technical indicators, could be macroeconomic indicators, it could be fancy big data from the credit card transactions or the satellite imagery. You could have 100 features, you could have 1,000 features. They are arranged, you can imagine them as columns on a spreadsheet. Okay. And the rows are the different trades that your base model makes. The rows might be, okay, today I make three trades. One trade was profitable, next trade is negative, the third trade is negative again. So you might have three rows represent three round trips that you made. And of course, you will collect data on maybe thousands of trades that you have done in the past. So what is called a target variable, or some people call it label, or other people call it a dependent variable, would be whether that trade in the past was profitable or not. If it's profitable, let's call it one. If it's not profitable, let's call it zero. And based on these hundreds of features, you are trying to predict whether it's going to be one or zero. The one or zero are what is called a matter label by uh, Dr. DiPrado and Dr. Lopez DiPrado. So once the system is trained like that, when you give it a new set of features, let's say today's price, today's GDP numbers, today's unemployment number, whatnot, it will try to, it will generate probability. The label is going to be zero. 
which means profitable, or I'm sorry, where the label will be one, which is indicating profitability, or zero, when you expect a loss. So clearly, if the model tells you that it expects a loss, you might hesitate to trade, or even if you were to trade, you might hesitate to put on the full capital into that trade. So how do you think about the trade sizing? This is one of those systems where you need it to work in the tail, right? And so it seems like you're adding a second layer of potential conditional decision-making that your trend actually could have been correct, but the machine learning layer could actually say, hey, don't trade. How do you think about managing the risk of that second layer on top, knowing that you really do need this system to work in those tail events? Yes. So there is a little bit of discretion on how you use the probability generated by the machine learning system to scale your trade size. If you trust it completely, you could say, well, anytime it says less than 50% probable that it will be profit, we don't trade. Or you could say, well, I will let the machine learning only reduce the risk. Let's say we'll take off one half of the capital if it's reduced below, if the probability is below 50%. So there's a bit of a discretion. Or if you don't like discretion, you can backtest what's the threshold you would choose to reduce capital. Now, as a practical, as an actual example, the, our machine learning system tell us to not trade for three months in a row. November 2019 to January 2020, there was not a single trade that they allowed, which we think makes perfect sense because those three months are no risk, everything great. Trade war has been resolved. Fed is not going to interest, increase interest rate. Economy is firing all cylinders. Nothing is too worse. So we said, no tail risk on the horizon. Just stop trading, take a vacation. And then all of a sudden, on February 1st, the system said, tail risk is on the horizon. Start trading, full size. And we were a bit kind of taken aback and say, well, you know, look at the media. Everything's, you know, yes, there's an epidemic in China, but there's only maybe one case in the US. What's to worry? Nothing, and the market's still going up. So we were a bit concerned that this system, is it? overly cautious, but we follow his recommendation. We start to trade Tail Reaper full size starting in February 1st, and it had barely stopped asking us to trade since then. I mean, recently it started to tell us to reduce size because of the market has returned normal, but for February and March, it practically asked us to trade every day. And process allowing us to capture the full tail of those two months, which I thought was uh, unexpectedly amazing, this machine learning program, that it actually turned on on February 1st while everybody else, well, not even as, I wouldn't count, for example, Bill Ackman as one of them, but many people in the market thought that there was no risk on the horizon. So there is a risk that the machine learning system won't work necessarily, but it has shown us it validated itself during this most critical. How is the metal labeling approach different than just trying to apply a regime filter overlay? Well, we have actually looked at a lot of regime detection algorithm, hit and Markov model and whatnot. It had not been very successful in the past. It's very hard to detect a regime change with simple model. You know, many regime model, uh, detection model, uh, for example, Markov, hit and Markov model use maybe a handful of uh, predictors, typically past prices, returns, and trying to predict the next price and return and in the process detect when the regime change. Practically a kind of a unsupervised model because it's very hard to 
label what regime it is. Oftentimes, the system has determined for itself how to mark off certain peers as a certain regime. And it hasn't worked very well for us. So what we found that is a supervised training model in machine learning based on a lot more features than what a typical regime detection model can handle is the is what which works better. So can you talk a little bit about some of those features, maybe sort of the types of features that you're looking at? Are they traditional market-derived features? Is it alternative data? Is there any surprising features that you found to be useful? Yes. Actually, we don't use any particularly fancy data features. We don't use any major big data or alternative data, that news data even. We stick to market data. That is data that uh, get updated at least daily. So you don't have to wait for one month to get the GDP number, for example. And of course, we will apply appropriate transformations to that data. So it's not necessarily just a raw, let's say, market index, but we would apply all manners of linear and long-lean transformation to the market index and make them perhaps more uh, informative. One of the things that sort of strikes me is that you're attempting to identify profitability in tail periods. And by definition, tail periods are rare. And by definition, we don't have a lot of data for them. So is there really enough empirical data to support meta-labeling if if you're focusing on profitability during tail events? Well, actually, our tail uh, reaper strategy trade more often than you would imagine for tail head strategy. I would say that maybe at least 20% a year of the trading days a year we put on the trade. So it doesn't require really a like a 10% move to enter a trade because that's who you probably have to wait for 10 years. It will enter much more often than that. But so based on the base model, it generates quite a substantial training data set because of that. Now, after the risk management layer based on machine learning, it will call back the training signal to a much smaller set. But that is the output of the machine learning system, not the input. So the input will still manage to have, let's say, a thousand or more rows of data, which is sufficient for a lot of machine learning programs. If you look at the benchmark database that many machine learners use outside of finance, that's typically the size. And actually, that's also a reason why deep learning cannot be used in this kind of problem. And despite the great enthusiasm for deep learning, they may work for high risk trading, but for a system that trades a few times a day, or maybe even once a day, there is not enough data to fit the thousands of parameters that are typically needed for deep learning. So therefore, the machine learning model itself has to be simple, even though it's more complicated than a base model, it cannot be as complicated as a deep learning. I want to go back to the trend following system for a moment. Most trend following systems are characterized by a great breadth of instruments that they trade. You mentioned that your model only trades the S&P E-minis. Yes. It strikes me that there might be other equity indices that could be useful. Certainly during 2008, it was the bond futures that offered a lot of profitability in that sort of crisis period from that flight to safety type characteristics. I would imagine there are currency pairs that could be very effective as potential hedges. Why focus specifically on the e-mini and not try to create more breadth in the trades that you make? Well, we have experimented with many different markets over the years. And it's, yeah, it also surprises that it only works in the S&P. And I believe one of the reasons is that there is a lot more rebalancing 
and hedging activities both in the equity space as well as in the derivative space that are tied to the S&P index, which is driving the momentum intraday in the S&P, which is absent in, for example, many of the European indices, in Asian indices. There's just not the same volume of derivatives hedging activities there to support this kind of trend. And why not incorporate machine learning itself in the trade signal generation? If you're finding benefits in the risk management, you would think that there might be opportunities for enhancing the signals themselves beyond just, I don't want to use the word naive, but a standard trend model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that is come back to the issue of overfitting. We have a little success using machine learning to directly generate a trading signal ourselves. And that was also a point made by Lopez Prado, because it's oftentimes a trading strategy need to have a sensible, fundamental reason for it to work. If it is a pure black box model, even if the creator doesn't know why it works, many investors, and including the creator himself, will have some doubts on whether we should be confident in that model. Every model would have a drawdown, and you know, in a drawdown, if you don't know why it has a drawdown, one is tempted to shut it down. For both psychological as well as real theoretical reasons, namely overfitting, it is not recommended to actually apply machine learning to the basic signal generation. Now, I know many people differ. You know, Nima Ray, for example, is quant well, well, I'm sorry, well quant, uh, likes to take completely black box signals and put them together, and they no doubt have their own, their success. But from my personal experience, it hasn't worked that way for us. And it's not because of lack of trying. I've been trying to do that since 1997 and had never had much success using the black box approach in generating real problems. When you originally thought of building the Tail Reaper program, it was to solve a problem that you had yourself in running your own spot forex strategy. Why was your decision to ultimately create a second program that could serve as a tail risk hedge rather than trying to identify the potential flaws in the primary system and address it there? Why create two systems? Yes. So we already have a risk management layer that's based on a small number of market variables that we apply to the tail hedge, tail reaper strategy. And it had worked okay. But it did not prevent some of the drawdowns that we experienced, which were painful in 2019, that we lost about 8% in that year. So uh, while the market was up 30%. Now, as we observe each trade that it loses, we come up with a lot of ideas. You say, oh, is it because this uh, treasury went up? Is it because we had a, a few days of mean reversal? Or today is also going to mean reverting? Or is it because the market went up too much before they opened? We have many ideas and speculations, but it is impossible to put them all together in a simple model to generate a risk management scheme. You have every day you come up with ideas very soon, you have 100 ideas. And how do you put all these 100 ideas together in a simple and logical model? Well, machine learning does precisely that. You have a lot of ideas, great. Throw them all in. Let the machine tells you which idea makes sense. And besides, sometimes, in certain periods, you know, maybe these ideas work, and in other periods, maybe other ideas work, and they have this also conditional dependence. Maybe if the market went up because the interest rate went down, then blah, blah, blah. Or maybe if the fix went up, but 
the market went also, then blah, blah, blah. So all this conditional dependence is extremely difficult for a human to hard code into a model. And but machine learning, especially random forest, is practically designed for that. So as someone who had a great depth of experience using machine learning models in the late 1990s and found the risk to truly be overfitting, what made you come back around to machine learning and say, I think that I can now solve that problem of overfitting, that I am more confident that this model is robust to changing market dynamics. Yeah. Well, that is really attributed to the advances in the general field of machine learning and not just financial machine learning. For example, I mentioned that in the old days, decision tree or regression tree was already used a lot. And well, now in the last 10 years, everybody has moved on to the so-called random forest where you are averaging over an ensemble of decision tree in order to reduce the overfitting. Similarly, neural network was well known back in the day, but now with the dropout technique being applied frequently, you know, essentially randomly poking holes in the neural network, the overfitting problem has also been solved to a large extent in neural network, although it's still too big for financial machine learning, in my opinion. And then beyond these kind of techniques, there is the notion of feature selection. And again, the importance of feature feature selection was actually mentioned in a recent paper that we wrote. It is that even though you might think that 150 of your ideas and inputs might be important, by applying feature selection, it will reduce the number of actually important inputs to a much smaller number. And that will also reduce overfitting. So all these advances that people outside finance have made in the last 10, 15 years have helped us to actually make machine learning work better. So I actually want to talk about that paper you just brought up because this was a really interesting paper you published recently. If taking a step back, one of the attractive features and attributes of random forest models and decision trees more specifically is that they're much more transparent typically than a lot of other machine learning models. You can really extract the implied feature importance and get an understanding of which features your model is really relying on. But this research you published actually suggested that these features can be highly unstable, that you can sort of change your random seed and rerun your model and find completely different features as being potentially important. If the features are all that unstable, that I create my model once and it identifies one feature as being really important and then I recreate it in another way and another feature outranks it, can we really trust the model at the end of the day? That is precisely the question that troubled us before we wrote the paper. We ran the typical feature selection algorithm on our meta-labeling program. And every time, tell us that a different feature is important. <laughs> Say, what is, how is that going to help us? <laughs> because it seems completely random. And it's not only the top important feature. Even if you look at, let's say, the top 10 features, every time you run it with a different random seed, we're going to give you 10 different features. So we were completely confused and very concerned whether this process has any meaning at all. So we decided to really drill down into this problem and to get to the bottom of it. So what we found is that, first of all, different algorithms produce different variability. For example, MDA produce features that are quite different every time, whereas if you use Lime or Sharp, produces features that are much more similar every time. So in our opinion, it is better to use these newer techniques than the 
traditional one. And the second discovery we found is that the default settings of all these algorithms, a number called n repeat in the sample in cyclic burn, is set too low. You have to really iterate the algorithms a hundred times, essentially using a 100 random seeds and average them to get a stable set of features. If you just run it five times, which is the default value, you will find that the features differ every time you run. So 100 seems to be the magic number. <laughs> you might think of it as the law of large number. Everything better when you average a lot. And the, but the more surprising, actually the most surprising fact also, the third finding, which is perhaps the most surprising, is that we find it doesn't matter in terms of out-of-sample predictive performance whether features are picked are the same every time. It would matter very much, of course, to a human interpreter. Many people use feature selection not to improve their predictive performance per se, but to have an intuitive grasp of what are the important inputs to the model, what are the important features that uh, driving offer in the model. For that, you do need feature selection because otherwise there's no intuition if you every time you get a different set of features. And our high number of iterations will solve that problem using the more recent feature selection technique. But if your only goal is to improve, let's say, predictive accuracy, interestingly, it doesn't matter what method you use, or it doesn't matter whether you run it 100 times or 5 times or 10 times, they produce fairly similar improvement over the base model. So that one was a real mind bender for me, if I'll be honest, this idea that feature stability does not affect your out-of-sample performance. It seems a little counterintuitive that I could have a model that identifies certain features as being very important, another model that identifies a different set of features as being very important, and their out-of-sample performance would be close. What is the intuition behind that? Well, some would attribute it to a effect called the substitution effect. That is to say, there are perhaps clusters, and I think that's also Dr. Lovatibaru's favorite term recently. There are different clusters of features that where within the cluster, they are very similar. You might look at, for example, S&P 500 daily return as one feature, but you could look at maybe Russell 2000 return could be another feature, and they probably will be in the same cluster. If you run different random seed, and one time it might pick S&P 500 return as the top feature, and another time it might pick Russell 2000 return as the top feature, they are, they are equally fine, even though they look quite different in name, but they could equally be used as a top feature in your machine learning algorithm. So that could be one effect. But that's not the complete story, because in our research, we find that even if you generate a syntactic database, a data set that does not have correlated features, where every feature are independently generated, no correlation. The program will typically still pick different features as the most important features. And that could also be fine because it's simple that, as I said, let's say we generate 100 ideas of how looking at certain variable can improve our trading. Well, it may not be the case that every day that 100 variables are equally important. Maybe some days, five of these variables are important, and other days, the other five would be important, and therefore, use a random seed, maybe you will pick a subset of these five days where this set is important, and another day, we'll pick this other set, and they are fine, because ultimately, the financial market is also very variable, so it is okay to have randomness in the 
features that are picked for different periods. And looking at this slide, interpretability to me is kind of overrated because the system is complex and we have different regimes in the financial market. You cannot really identify, okay, every month it has to be this variable that's important for your return. No, if you have a hundred different ideas, maybe only one of them are important for this month. And let's hope your machine learning algorithm pick that one for this period. And because of that, I think that we trust machines better than human interpretation of it. I think that last point sort of leads naturally into a question about how frequently you re-optimize these models. This idea of there might be some non-stationarity in markets that lead to features being effective in certain market environments and not effective in others. Is this a continuous re-optimization process? And along the same lines, I guess I would also ask, adding new features. How often do you add and remove features from the feature set? Yeah, I think that we do continuously train the system, although not necessarily on a daily basis, because we don't want to overweight recent samples either, right? So even though new samples are certainly important to incorporate in the training, but there's not necessarily proof that the most recent features are the most important. But the new features are definitely continuously being added because the features are truly based on human intuition. We observe the trading every day and we say, okay, why is there this big loss? Ah, because of that or because of the interest rate, or because of some technical issue, it breaks through the 200-day moving average. And let's put that in, and we train the system to see if it works better. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. What about hyper-parameter tuning? This is a topic that gets a lot of play in the machine learning space. When you talk about something as fairly simple as a random forest, the decision of even just the depth and breadth of the forest can make a big difference in the stability of the model, your in-sample versus out-of-sample performance. How do you think about the hyperparameter tuning problem? Yes, hyperparameter optimization is an area ripe for overfitting. It no doubt will improve the bias, you know, the bias versus variance trade-off in machine learning. Bias means the error in the training set and the variance means the error in the out-of-sample. So if you optimize hyperparameters very carefully, no doubt the error in the training set will be very low. You'll be making excellent accurate predictions, but that could make your out-of-sample predictions rather poor at the same time. So it is, first of all, critical to apply cross-validation to hyperparameter optimization. You cannot just hyperparameterize on the training set. You have to make sure that it works on a cross-validated set. The second issue is that we don't over-hyper-optimize. Some people want to run the optimization for 1,000, 10,000 iterations, make it just pick the exact number. We said we view that as unnecessary and maybe even harmful. So we do a very light parameter optimization. We don't want it to be completely crazy. You know, if the depth of the tree is just set to one, probably won't work, but setting it to 10,000 probably won't work either. So let's hope a light optimization will find a middle ground somewhere. But we don't have to be make sure that the maximum depth is exactly 79 instead of 78. I know that machine learning has been a more recent adoption for you. It's something you came back to. And it seems to be something, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something that you've been excited to reintroduce to your process, something you feel has been a real value add. As you look towards the future, what are you excited about? 
Is it anything on the research front or is there any new models that you're bringing to market? Yeah, actually what we did in the machine learning was so tedious, so painful. <laughs> you know, we have a small team and everybody works very hard and we encounter numerous of these strange problems such as a variability of features uh, that we decided that we wanted to make this pain go away for many other researchers, which might be a surprise coming from hedge fund managers because hedge fund managers are supposed to keep everything secret. But I'm not a pure hedge fund manager. I'm a educator, an author, as well as a hedge fund manager. So what we did is that we put together our process in a service called Better Ask Hall. Hall, H-A-L, is the machine in 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> so betterasshall.com that we just launched recently is a online machine learning service that allow you to just upload any features you like in a spreadsheet. All you need to do is a spreadsheet and it will do the training that we apply internally to it in random forest. Nothing proprietary. It's not like we are giving up any secret source because everything is made with open source software, open source libraries. So it's totally transparent. Nothing's nefarious. Uh, but it will just greatly simplify the workflow of a typical machine learning pipeline. For any researcher who, even a programmer, they may not have the time to put together all these different pieces of machine learning. So that's what we are actually excited about, is to kind of launch this service for not only financial investors, but perhaps other data scientists. Well, Ernie, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for inviting me, Corey.